0: Susan Shulman sat down with moderator Melvin Bernhardt for a one-on-one interview in March of 1994. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited.
1: Today, we are very pleased to have as our guest Susan H. Shulman. And uh, interviewing her this afternoon will be Melvin Bernhardt. Melvin?
2: Okay. Uh, Hi. Um, I just found out before we were chatting in the back that Susan went to high school here. In In this this very place. I did indeed. What? um, How did you get interested in the theater?
3: Um, I don't know, Melvin. I was always (laughs) interested in the theater. I was born interested in the theater. I I can't. A number of people have asked me that. I've never been able to really answer the question. I, I was born in New York, and I was exposed to theater at a very early age. Uh, My father always took me into Manhattan for my birthday, and we saw a show. That was my birthday present. And I presume something in that ticked off something in me, and it's always what I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly what in theater, but I knew that I wanted to be in theater. When I was a very little girl, I used to direct shows on the front stoop of the brownstone that we lived in in Brooklyn, it was a natural stage and had that nice little door for entrances and exits, and <laughs> was raised and people could sit in the street and watch. So I don't know. I mean, it just seemed a natural thing to do. No one in my family is in theater, though. My father, who um, was from Romania, a part of Russia that then became Romania when he was there, it was Russia, and he was a barber and he was a traveling barber, sort of like the one in *Man of La Mancha*. And he often would apply makeup and false hair to the traveling theater groups. In uh, <laughs> so he tells me that it's because of him uh, that I was in theater. But who knows?
2: What What was it about about being there, being in the audience there with all of this going on on stage? Well, Did I you liked have the any... world
3: on stage a lot better than I liked the real world. I think it was it was uh, more organized. Um, I could tell, I think even as a as a young person, that things were, um, when I say organized, things had been thought through, like the costumes all matched, where in life people sat next to each other and they didn't match, they clashed. and um, the scenery was quite beautiful and the, the colors were in control, and uh, I'm a compulsive person. I liked all that control, I think. <laughs>
2: So what did you do about it then, having I, uh, decided that this was where you wanted well, to be? Well, I,
3: I, as I said, I didn't know exactly what it was I wanted to do, so I first, uh, every little girl obviously wants to be a ballerina. Um, so I thought, well, that's what I want to do, I'll be a dancer, and so I went to Miss Harriet's school in Brooklyn, <clears throat> which was in a garage, I remember that, that she had transformed her garage into a dancing school. And... um And I started as a dancer, and then um, when I got into junior high school, I heard about all the specialized schools in New York, and so performing arts became my goal, and I applied and auditioned for the School of Performing Arts. I was accepted. I was the worst dancer in my class. <laughs> and uh, I looked around and said, this will never do. I was telling Melvin that. I went, why should I be the worst dancer in class? It does make any sense.
2: Say who was in the class.
3: Well, I mean, it was Elliot Feld and Michael Bennett and Louis Falco. And, and, well, <laughs> come on. Um, even as a young child, a failure was not high on my list. Um, and I switched over to the drama department. Uh-huh. And um, there was a wonderful uh, director, woman who was in the department at the time of Annette Carroll. Her name just passed oh. him, Wonderful woman who taught acting. And I knew that she was also a director. So I was very fortunate to, at a very early age to have a female role model who was a director. And there were very few of them at that point in time. Annette was one of the only ones directing musicals. And then she only directed off-broadway. off, off hmm That that must have put a bug in my head, I think, because I did a lot of directing in uh, at performing arts and then in college.
2: And and then how did you set about getting started in the commercial? I mean, Ah. making a living (laughs) out of this.
3: Making a living. Um, uh, When I was in college, I went to Hofstra University in Hempstead, Long Island, which had a very good drama department at that time. I I believe it still does. and we were a very uh, competitive class and a very involved class. We liked doing a lot of things. Um, uh, we had some very, very talented people in that class, and um, we liked um, instigating productions. And so I wrote and I wrote plays, I acted in plays, I directed plays. We all did that as a group. And um, the chairman of my department had been a Yale... As a matter of fact, most of the faculty were Yale Drama School graduates. So we all wanted to go to the Yale Drama (laughs) School so we could be like our our teachers. And um, I applied and um, was told by the uh, then head of the directing department that women were not accepted in the directing department at Yale because they couldn't mind their work. They really couldn't concentrate, and it had been... Especially <laughs> and um so I wasn't accepted in the in the directing department and um I had written a couple of plays while I was in college, so my the chairman of my department said, apply to playwriting, they'd have all the fellowships there, so I applied <laughs> to playwriting where there were where no one was applying at that point in time, so I actually got a fellowship to Yale to the drama school, but in playwriting, which is kind of a ruse actually. Um, because once I got there, I wrote only the requisite number of plays, because I hated writing plays. I hated being alone in a room, you know, with a typewriter. There was nothing that was the antithesis of anything I wanted to do, and, um, and I did everything else. I directed a lot, and I acted a lot at Yale, and very often they threatened to take my fellowship away from me, (laughs) and we'd have big fights and whatever, but they never did take my fellowship away from me, and I remained at Yale, and, um and was graduated uh, in a riotous ceremony because I was chosen to be the, um, at graduation, I forget what the person, the marshal, the person who holds the stick, you know, for the class. And, and I, oh, I'm somewhat dyslexic, and they gave me a map to read in which I had to lead the entire drama school into the main quad in New Haven. <laughs> I got totally lost, and we were very late getting there, (laughs) I with the entire drama school behind me, and I think I was also chosen because I was neat, and at that time, (laughs) you neatness counted (laughs) quite a while, and so I led the entire drama school past the podium, good ten minutes late, they were already making speeches, (laughs) and we came and take our seats, and I thought, uh, Bruce Dean, Robert Bruce Dean was head of the department. Would have a kitten when he saw us watch it, and he just kind of looked to the heavens like, "Well, <laughs> what do you expect from that girl?" <laughs> but um when I left Yale, I was pretty. It was pretty clear to me that what I wanted to do was direct, but there was absolutely no opportunity for it. I mean, absolutely none. There were practically no women directing in commercial theater at the time. Regional theater was just starting, and even at that, at that point in time, all the artistic directors were men. Things have changed, and right now there's a much better representation. But um, So I accepted the first job that was offered me, which was to um, be a resident actress at the Studio Reedy Theater in Buffalo. And so I was a resident actress there for a season, and while I was there, they lost a director for a production of Wind in the Willows. I don't know if you know, there's a wonderful full... Um, production um, play, Wind and Willows, and um, I said, Mimi, please, 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 and I was there, and I was cheap, and they were really in a bind, so um, they let me do it, and I knew that, I mean, I was sure that's what I wanted to do. I was not a very good actress. Uh, There were certain things I did well, but the main thing I didn't do well was mind my own business, and as an actress, you really have to do that. I kept looking over my shoulder, wondering what so-and-so was doing, and you know, second guessing the director—I was really a pain in the neck for any uh, director, and I knew that um, this wasn't my uh, my future. So, <laughs> when I uh, left the studio, I hated Buffalo. Has anyone spent a year in Buffalo? I come oh. from there. Ah. <laughs> well now. Michael
2: Bennett and I come from honey, there York. Honey, then
3: you know. Oh, I know. Uh, I mean. i worked at the theater too. If there's ice on the ground, you know, except for two months out of the year, it's just filled with ice. I just kept falling down. <laughs> That's what I remember at Buffalo, I just kept falling. And I um, came back to New York and of course there's absolutely no work. And um, I got a job teaching theater, actually running the theater program private school in Manhattan. <coughs> the wonderful headmaster who let me have time off whenever I needed it. And they had never had a drama program before, so I had quite Mm -hmm. um, a lot of latitude. And the kids were wonderful. Uh, Most of them were from broken homes. It was a very exclusive private school, and the kids got a lot of individual treatment. It was a great experience, actually. Um, During that time, a friend of mine... Boy, I'm not shutting up, am I? I'm just talking. Uh, A friend of mine opened a dinner theater on Long Island and dinner theaters were very big Then they were like mushrooms all over the country there were dinner theaters springing up and um, and she offered me a job to direct shows there and I directed eight shows in a row which is great which yeah. wonderful great experience I thought now look at my resume this is a great resume look at all these credits I'm going to come into New York <laughs> I'm going to get a job so I came into New York and I interviewed through TCG when TCG actually used to help place directors at some point in time, and nobody would hire me. They just... I mean, I walked... I had very long hair at the time. I also looked like I was about 20 years old. And um, I would... Literally, producers would look at me, and I could see their face drop. I mean, I could actually see the expression on their face when I walked into the interview. And so nobody would hire me. And I thought... um, okay, well, I'll work for nothing. I have this job at the private school, and I'll just go and do the lots and lots of showcases in New York. And at that point in time, people of note with names were not doing showcases. Not like today, where everyone directs a showcase. I mean, Melvin and I do showcases. Al Alvin does showcases. I mean, everybody does them. Um, but at that point in time, that was not true. Um, literally, showcases were for emerging talent. And um, I sat outside the door of the um, executive director of Equity Library Theater, which was the premier showcase at the time in New York. And I sat outside his door till he would see me. And he said, but you've got to do something I can see. If you direct something I can see, then maybe, you know. So um, some people were getting together and doing a production of, look, we've come through with the, Nat, the now Nat NatHawton Theater. And I did that production, and I was fortunate enough that Hugh Wheeler saw the production. Also the Executive Director of Equity Library Theater. And um, he gave me a chance to do a production of Arsenic and Old Lace the following season. And at that time, also Equity Library Theater was reviewed by the three major newspapers. And it got very good reviews. So he said, Well, how about doing a musical? I said, I've never done a musical. He said, That's the same thing. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I did carnival uh, the following season, never having done a musical in my life and not being able to read a note of music. And, um, boy, what do you do when you're young, you know, when you have no fear? (laughs) Um, So I did this revival of Carnival, and um, I was very fortunate that Michael Stewart saw it, who wrote the book for Carnival. And that was very successful, and that got great reviews. And someone from Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera saw that production and offered me a season directing musicals at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. I had never directed anything bigger than a postage stamp. Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera is a 3,000 seat house <laughs> with a 55 foot presidium opening and a complete union stage group. Mm. <laughs> the first show I did there, talk about Baptism by Fire, was Mame with Dixie Carter who was wonderful. She was a doll to work with and I bluffed my way through it. I had never managed anything that huge in my life. And I worked there for eight years. I was a very good bluffer. And uh and that was a great, great education because um I did fifty musicals. Fifty full scale musicals with large budgets. And to be
2: something more than bluffing. Uh,
3: yeah, well I sort of liked it too. <laughs> they were very Pittsburgh's a very sophisticated music and theater town and um they encouraged me, the press in Pittsburgh actually encouraged me in my, let's call it, revisionist um, way of doing musicals, which I didn't know was revisionist at the time. It's just that I had no background in it, so I took a different a new approach to them. I thought, like, why do we do in ones? In ones are horrible. They're a pain in the neck. They're clunky and who likes blackouts? So I just got rid of all of that. And they were very encouraging. So I was very fortunate. I worked in a city where everyone said, yes, do this. this is great. Look at what you're doing to South Pacific. South Pacific looks like a brand new show. All that sort of thing. I was very, very fortunate. And we got great talent to work in Pittsburgh. It was a premier summer theater in the country. Really got first-class talent. So, so that was wonderful. In the middle of that, Hugh Wheeler, remember Hugh Wheeler? I did a... Equity Library Theater came and asked me if I wanted to do a production of A Little Night Music, and I said, oh, great, absolutely. I had just done my first Sondheim musical at Pittsburgh, which was Follies. i really love to go into the really easy stuff first. <laughs> Follies, which is the hardest thing i would ever done in my life. I mean, it was so difficult. That show was incredibly difficult, and you never felt that you had finished working on it. Um, and I said I'd love to do night music. I was at this point in love with um, with Sondheim's music, and um, I did a little night music at E.L.T. in New York. And uh, Hugh Wheeler came to see it and liked it very much, and called Stephen Sondheim and said, "Who was coming back from England at the time?" said I think you should catch the show, and he did. He caught the last performance of it, and so that was the first introduction I really had to Mr. Sondheim. And we barely met. Barely, other than to say, hi, congratulations, and that was it. Um, I continued to work in Pittsburgh. I continued to do workshop showcases in the city. And um, Janet Walker at the York Theatre Company um, asked me if I would do a production of Company that uh, they were planning for the next season at York. And um, I said, okay, sure. And I did that. Mind you, I'd never made a cent in New York. Directing. All the money I'd made was out of town. was either in Pittsburgh or in regional theaters around the country where I'd worked during the winter. Every time I worked in New York, I worked for nothing. Tokens, maybe. Now, Janet Walker saw so
2: your work in New York?
3: She saw the uh, night music. ELT. At ELT. She saw the night music at ELT. And um, I did this production Company, which was a great revelation to me. I loved working on the material. And um, and Mr. Sondheim saw it and was very pleased with it. And that's the first time I actually spoke to him. We actually had a conversation. It was about company. And um, there was some talk about moving it, and it never really happened, and, and that was fine. the following year, um, because of company, I was asked to do Sweeney Todd and to do it in this kind of chamber uh, version. And um, that was very successful and then moved to um, the Circle in the Square. Interestingly enough, we all made a decision. <laughs> it was very funny. When they asked me to do Sweeney Todd, I actually had trepidation about it. I felt that it had been such a huge hit and only 10 years earlier and was so, um, in its way, so connected to Hal's magnificent production of it originally. I mean, they were a part of each other. People thought of Sweeney Todd and thought of that magnificent production at the Gershwin, and I thought it was a mistake for my career to do something like that, and um, I was concerned about it. And then I said, you know what, what career? I don't have a career in New York. Who cares? What are they going to do to me? You know, <laughs> point of fact, I didn't have a career in New York. So I thought, so I still won't have a career in New York. At least I'll get a chance to direct a show I love and very much want to do. So I thought, okay, fine. So I'll do it. So I did it in the gym up at the church at the Heavenly Rest. I don't know if you've been up there. You do shows in the gym. And um, with basketball hoops on <laughs> it. And
2: everything has to clear.
3: Right, right, Everything
2: has to be able to be taken down.
3: <laughs> every, after every performance, they strike the set because it's used It's a gym the next day. So you're very limited as to what you can actually put up there. Um, you know, necessity is... Um, the mother of invention, as they say, and because we had to do it in that space, we came up with a very inventive ground plan and a spectacular set by Jim Morgan. Um, And we all decided that the show was going to move. We had made up our minds. And so when people said, gee, I hear the show's going to move, we said, yes, it's going to move. No one had come at all and asked (laughs) us to move the show. (laughs) So we just decided to say, it. It it was an unheard of situation. It had 16 people in it, and um, off-Broadway was definitely not a possibility for it. It, it. Even though it had been a magnificent original production, it had lost a million dollars the first time. It had not, not made any money. So the possibility of this moving was absurd. But we all just decided that we, that's what we were going to say. So we said it. Then we decided where we wanted it to move, which was circle and the square, because circle and the square had the same configuration. We could keep the basic vision of the piece... And so we began to tell everybody that I was going to move to Circle of the Square. Circle of the Square hadn't even come to see the show yet. Um, And then, you know, um, this is obviously history. Frank Rich um, wrote a uh, critics... It had been reviewed by the Times by Stephen Holden, a very lovely review. And then Frank Rich came, totally unknown to me at the time, and um, wrote a critics' notebook on the show. I got a call at midnight one night and from Janet, and she said, Do you have tomorrow's Times? And I said, No, I usually don't get the Times in the morning. She said, I think you should go out and buy the Times. I said, Why? She said, Just go out and buy the Times. I said, OK. <clears throat> I went out and I opened the Times, and there was an entire article, I mean, pages about Sweeney Todd, this production of Sweeney Todd. I was shaking. I had no, none of us knew this was going to happen. Um, and uh, two days later, the people from Circle of Square came and saw it, and it moved. So um, that's sort of the history of that. While I was teching <coughs> Sweeney Todd at Circle of Square, I got a call from Heidi Landisman, who asked if she could come and see me about something. And I said, sure, but I'm in tech. So you have to come over to the theater. And we sat in the theater between light cues, and she talked to me about The Secret Garden. She said, did you ever read a book? And I said, of course, every little girl has read The Secret Garden, and I love it, and la la la, and all of that then followed. So, that sort of brings you up to date. If you have any questions.
2: <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> so,
3: anyway, so Sweeney Todd was me, the first time I ever got paid for anything, was Circle and Square in New York.
2: Don't they still owe you money. <laughs> <laughs> they still owe me money, right? <laughs> It's a hard <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Okay, that's how it happened. Um, how can it happen? What do other people do? Mm, what can people do now? Okay. Things are obviously no. different.
3: They're different. All I can say, you know, I talk to college groups um, because I, I, with Sweeney Todd and Seaward I got asked a lot to speak to college groups because I'm still sort of a freak, you know, a woman who's directing commercial theater musicals. Um, and they, they ask me that, how did you do it? And I go through this scenario. And when I think back on it, I think the most important thing is to work, is to make work, even if it doesn't exist. You've got to do it. Even if you get a few people together and do it in a loft, someone's loft, and you invite a couple of people to see it. Um, and you've got to be willing to work for nothing. I know, I know how hard that is. Trust me, I really do. But you have to do it. Um, I have a couple of young assistants, and I've had them a couple of shows, and every single one of them started out working for nothing and has wound up getting jobs from it, from that particular, maybe not the first time they worked with me, but the second time, and then it's it's blossomed into something. Um, Terry now has got an intern from SDC Foundation who worked with me on the Red Shoes for a while. then went on to do Allegra with me and someone called me and said, gee, I need someone to work with me, this, this, this in the summer. I need someone to do it. I said, is it a paid position? They went, Absolutely, I went, I've got the person for you. And um, you know, that sort of thing. But she did two shows for me for nothing. And um and was fabulous. And and so you've got to do that sort of you've got to be willing to do it. It means you need to be subsidized. It really does. It means if your parents would have paid for graduate school, let them you know, pay for a couple, help you out with it. Don't be embarrassed about that. The arts have always been subsidized. Um, my older brother and sister gave me money for many years to help me through this. Um, and make things happen, get together, make things happen. I'm, I was invited to a young director. Uh, started a little company. It was Emma Walton, started a little company. I went, it was upstairs in a room somewhere on Upper Broadway. It was literally in a room. And some Horton Foot shows were being done. They were beautiful. They were wonderful little productions. And then she got together with her husband. She started a little theater out on Long Island. I mean, you, even with her connection, she had to do it that way. And I think that's the best advice I can give people starting out is that to make it happen for yourself. If you wait for somebody to give you a job, it ain't going to happen. There's too many people
2: out there. I'm just, you know, so. I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking, Susan, that uh, I'm another generation. Mm-hmm. Um, also went to Yale. And, also, mm-hmm. and my first job, I worked for nothing at the Phoenix <laughs> Theater. I was the guy who went for coffee. I mean, Sir Michael Redgrave died mm-hmm. owing me money for coffee. <laughs> right. Many years yeah, later, right. I tried to get it from Lynn. And, and, <laughs> but it hasn't changed. No. Except that. Now here comes the sad part. What's changed, from my point of view, my perspective, is there is so much less theater. Absolutely,
3: that's true. What um, can we do
2: about that? Do you we have- can make theater
3: is what we can do about it. It's the only thing I think we can stay make more, it. You more. know, we can we can um, we can encourage young people to write for the theater. I think that we're losing one of the reasons, so much is we're losing a lot of talent to popular music to television writers, straight writers television to television, to Hollywood because there's money there and because there's so little encouragement here. I'm encouraging two young writers right now on a project. I think they're brilliant. I think they're very talented. I don't know if the project is commercial or not. I'm not doing it because of that. But they needed, they needed the help of someone who had some experience, who had a little bit of clout in the profession to help them push them along. And um, and I'm not doing it because I think someday I'm going to direct this piece on Broadway. I don't think it's a Broadway piece. Um, but I think they're vastly talented and they need the encouragement. And they're willing to do it anywhere. And that's very important. Um, and I'll, just to make the work, to try to make it for yourself. You go to school, you have talented friends you went to school with, um, Get together with them and do something somewhere. There are lots of, interesting, there's lots of venues in New York that don't cost money. There really are. If you invest in lots of churches, have little basements, and one night a week, you know, you want to put on a show. They're, they're, they're not as difficult as you think to convince about things like this. Um, mm-hmm.
2: What do you want to say about um, uh, the American musical, just having done uh, <laughs> um, a, a staged... I mean, you've done a lot of revivals. You've done all of the great musicals in your in your years at uh, Pittsburgh. Right.
3: You know, two, I have two things to say. First, I'm very happy that revivals are now looked upon, upon in good grace. That people now look at revivals and they'll go, ugh, just another revival. I mean, I never understood that. This is our heritage in theater and they're great musicals. Over in England, they revive shows continually. They revive, well, they don't have as, they revive our musicals, but they revive straight plays all the time. Part of the theater. Part of the tradition of the theater. They, I mean, I went there and I saw two Oscar Wildes. I saw a Priestley. I mean, these are not new shows. Um, and along with, you know, whatever is being written new. And so I'm thrilled that revivals have now won respect. I think it's about time, and I'm glad. However, I think at the same time, I would, um, I would love to see some new musicals, and I think the problem is what I stated before. I think we're losing our most talented people. We're losing them to the other disciplines um, because it's so hard to put a musical on. I think getting a musical produced commercially in New York has got to be one of the most difficult things there is theatrically to get accomplished. Um, it, it's amazing what, what there is to get in your way. First of all, producers. There are so few producers who know what they're doing in musical theater anymore. I mean, there used to be producers who their, their job, their artistic vision was putting together a team and then putting their trust and faith in the team and sending that team loose. They, these were the great producers of musicals and the people who put Rodgers and Hammerstein and Josh Logan together and then understood that that was that was good they didn't that's these creative producers very few of them exist anymore most of the time they're businessmen and you look at the front page of a playbill and there are hundreds of them it takes so many producers to produce a show now it is because of finances so i think musicals have gotten out of hand i really do i think and i'm hoping i'm crossing my fingers that the spectacle musical has now just found its tiny place and is not where all musicals have to go anymore. I think spending $10 million for a musical is absurd. I just do. you're going to spend $10 million, produce 10 shows. You know, um, I don't know why you need to spend that much money, and I was involved in one that spent that much money. I didn't know why we were spending that much money. Um, but I think you begin to realize, Nick Heighton said, here at one of these symposiums, he said, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have the helicopter. And he's doing a production now, and, he's, and it's, a, it's a lovely production. It doesn't have any of that in it, um, the carousel. And you learn that you don't, that what musical theater used to be about was making a pact with the audience about everybody using your imagination. That was a pact. Musicals used to do that. He said, we know there's not a field behind you, we're going to say there's a field behind you, and everyone's going to believe that there's a great golden haze on the meadow. You know, I don't have to do pyrotechnics, I don't have to have a meadow, and I don't have a great golden haze, you know. I believe you when you sing, there's a great golden haze on the meadow, because I have imagination. And that's the way musicals used to be produced, so that you, the audience, supplied the pyrotechnics. And I'm hopeful that we're getting back to there a little bit. Um, Interestingly, about the Allegro that I just did, the poor little stepchild, Allegro, which came between Carousel and South Pacific, um, which was the concept musical, the first concept musical. Interestingly enough, do you know who the gopher on that show was? 17-year-old Stephen Sondheim got coffee for people and typed scripts. So um, it, it, uh, it was a very interesting, innovative musical. It tried to break new ground. It, it was very flawed. It wasn't just that it was ahead of its time. It was also very flawed. But um, it was wonderful to investigate that and to see where a lot of the ideas for what we now call a concept musical have, uh, really sprang from Allegro and from Agnes DeMille's vision of the piece. And interestingly enough, Agnes never got the credit for it. The following show, which was South Pacific, which Josh Logan did and used many of the ideas from Allegro, um, South Pacific was a show that got all the credit for being innovative. And actually, most of the scenic ideas were from Allegra. So um, I have it on Jamie Hammerstein's authority that Josh Logan s- stood in the back of the house in New Haven and watched the out-of-town previews of Allegra. So um, he was well, fascinated by the use of the space and uh, the seamlessness of the production.
2: The hit is the one that always gets the credit.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh- what, what, what this
2: isn't staying still on the subject of musicals, but um, what do you feel about uh, the sung-through musical? <clears throat> you all know what I mean. No book. Everything is sung.
3: Um, they're fine. Um, I, I, I think some work better than others. The ones that are closest to opera thematically are obviously the ones that work best. I get a little annoyed with them with when the recitative comes in, and it's so um, so annoying. Do you have a cup of tea? No. The cup of tea is in the other room. I'll go get the cup of tea. I always go, well, <laughs> you know, talk. Um, just because I find it silly, you know. I just find that silly. It's, it's like we'll be a sung through musical at all costs. I, mean, I think if this is some dialogue, it should be dialogue. Um, and you just can't sing about getting a cup of tea. So unless the cup of tea has poison in it, then you can sing about it. <laughs>
2: That's the director of Spanish <laughs> yeah. Um but, but see, what I, what? What I miss in, in, in the sung-through musical is that what, what I thought was wonderful about the American musical was there was this moment when you went from a scene Absol- to song right. because right. that was a lift.
3: Absolutely. I much prefer directing a book musical. I, I love building the scene into the song. I mean, I think that's what's so wonderful, what we did here in this country that nobody else did, um, and that's what the American musical really is, um, really is, is the book musical. Is when what we always say is that the emotion gets so great you can't speak anymore, you have to sing it. Um, and, I, you know, I agree with you. I much prefer directing a book musical. I'm, I think, quite honestly, they're harder to do. And I think that's why they're not being written as, as much anymore. The sung-through musical is a lot easier to do. The book is much pared down, and... Um, you know, you don't have to worry about building that scene into that song, which is takes a great deal of craft.
2: Did you, uh, I assume you saw the Vincent Canby piece about going to the four big hits? Yes. Any comments? <laughs> no. no? <laughs> what about the price of musicals?
3: Oh, well, I think it, that goes along with what I was saying before. They're so. million ex- Right, exactly. If people spend $10 million to put it up, I guess they have to get their money back. I mean, investors, there has to be some possibility. Of the investors getting their money back, and I suppose if you don't put that sort of ticket price on it, you'll never make it back. I mean, as it is, they almost never make it back. I mean, it's a handful of musicals who make back their initial investment. It's frightening, even ones that have had two year runs sometimes don't make back their initial investment. Is
2: that because they're overproduced mm-hmm. or badly produced, mm-hmm. or or is, both, just, I think. or is it just or is it just a form that is too expensive? for us these
3: days. No, I think, I think they're just overproduced a lot of the time. It goes back to what I was saying about not mm-hmm. trusting the audience's imagination, not trusting that pack. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, that, that's what has always made theater different from film. And, and now I think theater's trying to compete with mm-hmm. film. Uh, the difference has always been that pack that uh, you make with an audience, which is, hey, you use your imagination, I'll, you know, I'll give you the clues, I'll press the buttons, and you do fill in the rest. And um, that's what's always very exciting about live theater. And I think what has happened with the spectacle musical is trying to compete with motion pictures. And I, I don't think it—I don't think we'll ever do that. And it's—and I think it's begun to realize that. We'll see. I don't know.
2: It's interesting. Also, <laughs> you just jogged my brain. Mm-hmm. Is that movie musical is dead?
3: Right. And and they keep the only animated features have brought back. Yeah. Musicals, yes, absolutely.
2: Why is, Why is it that it'll work for animation? But, <clears throat> yeah, but the, the um, Nick Nolte movie, they had, they went and cut all the songs. They out. cut all the songs, but,
3: but a number of people said that it was better with the songs in it. I think it's scared. I think people are just scared. It's a hard genre. Has always been a hard genre to bring to film, um, and has, you know, had a short a rather short life when you think of the ones that really could have been stage musicals. You know, there was always a different sort of structure in the movie musical. Either the, the, the musical section was a performance section within the film, but a true book song. There were very few really true book songs, except things like Singing in the Rain and, you know, the better ones that were laid just before the end of it. Um, so I don't know, I don't really know. I think, I think we also stopped being so innocent and naive, and it was hard to believe that people were going to dance in the street in the pouring rain, and we went through this period of cynicism, and I think that um, they didn't hold up well during that period, but I think people right now are dying for um, that kind of magic and fantasy, too. I mean, the shows that seem to capture the imagination are the ones that remove an audience most from their everyday life. So, hence
2: the cartoon <laughs> music.
3: Hence the cartoons, right. Yeah.
2: What would you all like to... Uh, Ask Susan. I mean, obviously, this is a uh, person who can respond to whatever. I don't have to do a thing. This is terrible. Yeah. Can you talk some more about the regional theaters, uh, the opportunities? Obviously, if there's work in the city, uh, you know, there are lots of regional theaters that do lots of musicals
3: Um. I, you know, if you've come from an stay I mean, I'm always telling people to stay home first. If there's a theater in their area, absolutely. I mean, I did a lot of work at the, the uh, Long Wolf Theater in New Haven, too, and I was up at Yale. Um, certainly, again, go in there and volunteer. I've never known a regional theater who won't accept a volunteer. What they can't do often is pay you. But you walk in there and say, look, I just graduated from so-and-so, so-and-so. I did Nine shows in college. I work props. I work. I'm here. I'll do anything. I bet you in a year you'll have a job. If you're good and you're committed and you're devoted. Could you talk a little bit
1: about your collaboration with choreographers and uh, the musicals you've done? How early in the
3: development? Um, I, I like to collaborate very, very early. On the new musicals on, on Garden and on The Red Shoes, um, I collaborated very early with Michael Lichtenfeld on Secret Garden. He was at every one of the book meetings we had on Secret Garden. And uh, Laura Lubavitch was. uh, And, you know, what's interesting is I have to fight tooth and nail to include the choreographer. Nobody sort of wants them there. It's like, you know, let's bring him in later. And that's always too late. Um, They go, why does the choreographer have to be there? I go, well... Us like they're creating too here at the beginning. And we need their vision, and also so much storytelling and musical is done through movement and dance. I mean, I'm a firm believer in non literal storytelling, and I believe that music and dance contribute as much to storytelling and scenic elements as anything else does in theater. And um, so I like to bring them on as early as I possibly can. Um, and I insist when I'm contracted that. Um, the choreography would be contracted at the same time. Not wait months later to do that. So you
1: divide the responsibilities of like the characters going to do the dances and you're going to do the book scenes? or is there? Depends on which
3: one of my collaborators you talk to. Um <laughs> they tease me and go, oh, if there's more than five people, it's mine. Um, that's not true. Um no, I, you know, it's not that simple because I, because of my background, um, I tend to do I often work like this with the choreographer. The choreographer will do the wider um, shell, and I'll come in and do the fine tuning. That we, a lot of, especially in shows like Sweeney Todd, where there's no dance per se, we will often work in tandem. Um, Someone actually came in and saw us doing More Hot Pies, which is the opening of the second act, and we were doing it simultaneously. We had talked it through, we had done lots and lots of homework on it, and numbers. I don't know, 20 pages long in the score and endless and complicated and layered and complete and all this. And um, Michael got it up on its feet and got the broad strokes going and I would come in as he would be working over here and I'd do this little part and you know, then we'd switch over and that little part. But because we had done the homework together, we weren't at odds with each other. We knew exactly what the other person was doing all the time. And, and Laura and I, on the the Broadway workshop for the Red Shoes, um, worked on any of the, not the ballet, but on any of the numbers. We certainly discussed them um, intimately. And so I was never surprised when I walked in and saw a number, and I watched the number in progress all the time. But as far as the whole way the show worked uh, at that point in time, we collaborated on that a great deal, the whole way the show moved from scene to scene, the way the dances were going to be used, et cetera. You mentioned that when you first got into musicals, you had no training in, your, in music. How did you finally bridge that gap? In- Interesting. After, after Carnival, um, I was fortunate that I had a very close friend who was a musical director, Tom Helm, and um, I did a season of summer stock after that. We were up in Maine, and I said, Tom, I'm so embarrassed. You know, I couldn't say, four, count four bars and come on. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anything. And he said, it's, it's not that hard. And I went, oh, well... You have to learn it as a child. If you don't learn it as a child, you can't. He said, what I think you should do is take piano lessons. And I went, oh God. And um, so that's what I did. I went to a teacher, and I said, look, I don't know anything. I look at those little black notes, and they start swimming all over the page. Um, and I said, and if you yell at me, I'll walk out. So uh, <laughs> I, I started with one of those little children's books, you know, music for kids, grade one at the piano, and I happened to be fortunate. I had a wonderful teacher who, before he even let me go to the piano, taught me to sight-read from the book so that I could, I could, by the time I got to the piano, I could look at a piece of music and actually clap it out. And, of course, he taught me to count bars and measures and read and holds and values, note value, and all of that. And by the time I got to the piano, um, I that was a part the reading knowledge was there of music. And, uh, I mean, I've never learned to play very well, but so that's what I did. So I can count measures now. (laughs) Yes. Just a footnote question. When I was at the Abraham School, I remember at least two female directors. Uh, Rustin was a student at that
4: time. And I was wondering whether he uh, he might have uh, stopped Hmm. Women directors for a while, because eventually they had them now, don't they? Did they have them when
2: you were there, Uh There were some women in my in my directing group, but I never heard of them making careers after we left. But they had been
3: admitted.
2: They were, yeah, yeah. There were, I think, maybe it was only one <laughs> in my class.
3: There was one when I got into Yale. There was one woman in the directing program. So, I mean, they may have had a quota, and I just was in excess of the quota. It's possible. <laughs> well,
2: that's, fortunately, that's something that has really changed. Oh,
3: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there are many women directing in regional theater, many women artistic directors now. It's changed everywhere but in New York, quite honestly, I think. There's still... I mean, this
2: is always the last.
3: <laughs> uh, well, it's a, prejudice is a big buck handling all that money,
2: is that what, yeah, I suppose it is. I think that's is. all it is, actually.
3: Yeah, we can't let a
2: woman handle all that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that figures. Could you talk a little bit about how you um, collaborate with the composer and the lyricist in terms of developing the
3: Yeah, well, it's very different. Each collaboration is totally different. It depends on when they come to you. Sometimes they come to you with, um, like when they came to me with... Um, Secret Garden. Secret Garden was a completed musical, though a flawed one, and they knew it. Um, and they had done a production in Virginia, I think. And um, so there was some undoing going on there. I, I said, you know, I think this and this and this, it doesn't work. And fortunately, after some debate, we all agreed on where we thought the direction of the show needed to go. And um, the first thing we need to do is form an outline. And that's what we did. We had an outline, a very succinct outline, which basically had one sentence in it, which just said, what happened? This is very interesting. If you can't write what happened, if you think you have to write a paragraph, then you're in trouble. because you don't know what's happened in the scene. What's the incident? What is happening in the scene? If we you say, well, Selma meets George, and they sit down and have a conversation about the grandmother, nothing is happening in the scene. Every scene in the musical has to have conflict. And you, know, and you should be able to do that one. So that's what we did. And we outlined it and we did that one sentence. And, um, and then we decided where the musical moments were. It seemed organic. And then they started writing the book and started writing the, the songs to fill in that outline. Um, on the Red Shoes, there was no book when I was aboard, but there was a, a movie. That existed, that it was being um, adapted from. So there was a structure, and how close to that structure, and how far away. I mean, you know, I was there at the very beginning of that, so I was very intimately involved. Um, both times I worked with the same librettist, so it was easier because we had a relationship. We knew each other's strengths and weaknesses, and uh, we had a very open exchange.
2: Now, when you worked, uh, when you did company, that was, you just hadn't met Stephen. Right. Then, uh, Sweeney Todd, you met him and mm-hmm. talked to him. And,
3: uh, <laughs> Many hours. Yes. yes. Uh,
2: th- now, that's what I'm, I'm wondering mm-hmm. about. Was there much collaboration in. in
3: um, it's interesting. St- Stephen is the ultimate collaborator and the ultimate gentleman collaborator. He never intrudes on your territory. Um, decorous is the best word for it. Um, I'd like to come see a rehearsal. Is Tuesday okay? No, we're doing like cues on Tuesday. It'll be, oh, okay, that, that's very, very decorous. very aware of what everybody's job is, very aware of what his presence brings to a rehearsal. Um, and Sweeney Todd, the first part of the, the York part, um, I had a very brief discussion with him over the telephone um, about what I was planning to do with it, how many people, I had to voice it, I had to revoice it for 15. That was the hardest thing to do to decide, because it was voiced for 30, how to how to shrink it and not lose the sound. And so I, I decided on that five a quintet. And he agreed with that. He said it was fine. And then we talked about the synthesizers. that the, I felt the show, in those tiny circumstances, could not be acoustic because of the nature of the, the music. And it, we decided on three synthesizers. So that was the extent of our conversation, actually. He didn't want to have anything to do with casting. He was very busy at the time with... Um, and, with London. He was doing the Oxford lectures. Oh yes, and um, and said, "Fine, I trust you." Those words that strike terror in your heart, you know. Oh my God! Now I have this major responsibility. And the first time he saw the show up at the church was um, one of the final dress rehearsals. And he came in, and he was just back from London, and said, where do you want me to sit? And I'll never forget this. I said, I want you to sit right next to me, because the only thing worse than having you next to me is having you across the room and my having to watch you take notes, <laughs> and, uh, which, which was fun. And he took like 300 notes. I mean, he spent the whole thing, the reams of yellow pads. I was a wreck. I thought... Oh my God, the lights are going to go up and, you know, I'm just going to dissolve into this pile because obviously he hates every moment of this production. And the lights came up at at intermission and I I thought, I can't even turn around and look at him. I was like devastated. There was a legal pad filled with notes. And I finally got up the courage because he wasn't saying anything. I went, so? He said, it's swell. It's just swell. I uh, said, sorry. I said, if it's so swell, what's that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and of course, you know, what it was was what he calls nitpicks because he's so aware of why every breath is in the score that literally the notes were this is, this rest here is really a 16th and it's the 16th because and so forth and so on. So it was extremely valuable information. And um, and, I, and he also asked for two major cuts. He asked for the cut of the um, overture, the organ prelude, which he always hated, which I was only happy, too happy to cut out. And also asked for the um, we had reinstated the tooth pulling sequence. There was a tooth. There was tooth pulling, and there was the um, after the haircut. Um, contest, it was tooth-pulling scene, we reinstated it, and though it was enormously funny, and he felt it was very funny and very well done, he felt it was gratuitous after the contest. And so he, and he actually said to me, you know, see what you think about it. I really think the scene works better if it's cut, but if you really want to keep it, you can keep it. I, I would prefer it cut. Fine, I cut it. Um, it, it. It wasn't that important to me. It was obviously just an extra piece. We had also reinstated the flagellation scene, which worked great. Um, and I couldn't imagine the show ever being done without it because it, it makes Sweeney, um, you're so on Sweeney's side after you see that horrifying man go through this this scene, and so that was fine. Then when we moved, um, he came to the, um, again, to the one of the texts and to the final dresses, and afterwards we would sit in a room and he would, again, have 200, 300 notes, all of that sort, mainly telling me what his intent was in writing a line a specific way, uh, a moment that he'd never seen before that maybe we could try to get, and so forth and so on, so that um, basically what he was asking me, I felt, was to come as close as I could to the original intent of each of these moments as possible. So it was... It was ...in the rehearsal process whatsoever, except one day asked if it would be okay if he had a music rehearsal, just would like to go through each of the numbers with the company and, um, and talk about, again, the intent behind some of these things so that everybody knew what he knew. And I thought, mine, I mean, this is fabulous. The cast would be thrilled, and indeed they were, and we had a great day just going from musical number to musical number. And um, and only had one major disagreement about something. At the end of the discussion, ended with, but it's your call. So,
2: what about Merrily? Is Merrily being reworked? In it, it has
3: been. It's it's been reworked, and it's. Um, now, did
2: you work together on this, uh, or these uh, were things he learned after the previous productions?
3: Yes, a lot of it are things they learned from the pre- previous production. There was a production that so, sort of culminated in all of these. Um, uh, you know, you learn from the good productions of the show and you learn a lot from the bad productions of the show. And Merrily, since its original New York productions, it had four or five major productions in this country, some of them extremely successful, some of them not. And um, they took the they took all of that, shook it together, and took the best from all of these. And they did a little production, well, not so little, actually, uh, but a production at Leicester, England last year, where they both felt that the script was now and the score was now as close to what they've always wanted it to be as possible, and um, and it is. I mean, I'm I'm very excited about the script. It's so clear now and uh, very focused and uh, very pointed um, and, and and easy to follow. It's not. Con- there was always so many excess people that it was very hard to follow prior to this, and it's not anymore. There are two, three new songs depending on which. Production, you're coming from, and there's a song cut, and um, and we're still doing some fixing in the dialogue and in certain of the scenes, but it's minor fine tuning,
2: right now. Looking forward to that. Yeah. How when he was when he was
3: here talked about
2: that show, I and mean, he said <coughs> that uh, that was the one one show that he worked on with Stephen that he didn't get, he just didn't get the show, and he thinks that was manifesting in
1: something in the production because he was never never thought the production
3: achieved because he still felt he didn't get it. Um, what is there to get about it? Do you, what, what is, oh, what is I, I'm, Well, I, I, I did not... I mean, the, the script is significantly different from the one that was done originally in New York and the one that was originally done was very confused, I think. Um, and it could be easy to see how it could not, how you couldn't get it. Um I, I think I'm fortunate enough to to now receive um, a libretto that's very focused and, and I think quite easy to get. I mean, it's a, it's a morality tale, and it's a very simple morality tale. Don't compromise your dreams. You're in big shit if you do, <laughs> and that's basically what it is. Um, and it's clearly that, I think. You compromise your dreams, you start compromising your relationships, you start compromising everything. I think what
2: Hal, um was talking about, I, he, he said he just never could visualize
3: it. Oh, he couldn't visualize he it. Never, that's he interesting. He never was the able to
2: visualize it. what it should be. Yeah. Are, do, you, do you find uh, that I that that's vi- how you work, too, that you have to have a Absolutely. vision of what the a- event is? Absolutely. If I is. can't
3: see it, if I can't see it on stage, I know there's something wrong. I mean, I'll say to young writers, because I, I, I run the workshop at BMI, the Librarian's Workshop, I can't see this. I don't know. How do you see this? What do you see? What do you, and for me, I can't start working on a show until I have what I call this vision. And I got the vision, which I will not tell you, um, but I got the vision from um after reading this version, and because of something that happened in The Red Shoes, because of going through a lot of anxiety and angst and emotional trauma through all of that. And an incident happened one night that restored my faith in myself and in my theatrical vision. And I felt that that was very closely related to what this story was about, uh, about not compromising your dreams. And um, it, it suddenly it was just... It personalized. It yes. certainly was personalized, sprang um, alive. And uh, so that's how that happened.
2: Very interesting, because Hal, Hal was saying much the same thing, things about the way he worked. Yeah. about the vision and that I see here is that uh, scenic designs played such a, a big role in the production. Um, how do you
3: communicate that <laughs> to your designers to get? Those um, it's, it, I'm a very visual person. I remember, I remember sets for shows I saw 20 years ago. I just have it imprints on my brain. I'm just just that's part of who I am. Um, I, the first thing I say to a designer. Is what I feel emotionally about the piece, and um, with Jim Morgan say on Sweeney Todd, I said, you know, the feeling I get about this piece is so claustrophobic. Is so nothing happens that isn't watched by somebody. These people live. Fleet Street is so crowded because we brought, designers always bring, or at least I've been fortunate enough to have designers that I've worked with, always bring me reams of research. You're doing a show, 1850 London, Fleet Street, I get more lithographs than you'd ever want to know about in your life. I mean, when I did Secret Garden, I have more books about the English country garden. I mean, you should see, my book is. So that's great, you know, because you just go through all this and, um... And but, but it starts with an emotional feeling, and I said, I get the feeling that, you know, someone once told me that if you put, if there's a little cage and you put two rats in it, they'll get along okay, but you put three rats in it, they start eating them each other. You know, the proximity causes this great anxiety and, and causes people to do things they wouldn't ordinarily do, lack of space and uh, lack of privacy, And so that was very important to me. I figured all these people are behaving in such an extreme way. How can I motivate that extreme behavior and also do it in a very theatricalized way? So we started to go... So we talked about that. I also talked about the fact that I didn't think that Sweeney Todd was a villain and the reason why he does. I also talked about the fact that I didn't think that Mrs. Lovett was a villain. I mean, she... There's a wide difference of opinion on this fact, but anybody who holds on to someone's belongings for 20 years when she could have sold them and she's starving is obviously madly in love with the man, you know. And what she's done, she's done out of great passion, not out of great greed. Um, Be all that as it may. We started then looking through lithographs and found this laundry that so many of these, these English tenements uh, and streets in the in the 50s were laundry. There were just the whole, like a maze, the whole streets were bisected by these diagonal lines of laundry and windows and people in windows, and there were hundreds of windows all over the place because everybody was cramped in together. And those two images, no matter what we looked at, kept reappearing and reappearing. That's where that all came from. Yeah. And then in, in The Secret Garden... Once we had decided that it was going to be a child's view, that it was going to be from Mary's point of view, both Heidi and I had played with those Pollock paper theaters as children. And um, so it was a natural, you know, period-wise, it was a natural idea. And to also then use the decoupage, which was something the Victorian girls did all the time, cut out all those strange things and pasted them together in the weirdest juxtaposition to each other. Very strange and surreal juxtaposition giant robins and tiny cats and, you know, they didn't, they just pasted them all, which gives you a very unsettling feeling because the proportion is so odd. I have a question. Um, I'm a student
1: at Music and art and Performing Arts High School
3: around Uh-huh.
1: And, um, I wanted to you know what was your performing arts experience?
3: Very different from yours. First of all, it was tiny. We were here in this little building, which didn't look at all like this. It was very old and very run down, and there were... Um, very few students. I knew every single person in my class by name, personally. I mean, I knew their parents, that sort of thing. So it was very small. Um, it it was also filled with... Um, for me, it was filled with lots of um, students from all over the city, but lots of people who came from creative families, which I did not. So for me, it was... Um, wonderful to know that there were actually people out there in the world who made their living as sculptors, as actors. I'd never met those kind of people before, so it was a great awakening to me. And and it was wonderful to be amongst so many talented students. Everybody was vastly talented who was here. There was also a great deal of individual attention, just because there were so few of us. Um, And we also, at that point in time, were able to see, we were right here, right in the heart of the theater district, we all saw everything. We saw every single show that opened on Broadway, bad, good, or indifferent. Every one of us. And everything at the ballet and everything at the concert halls, depending. Um, I don't know why that was. It just was. It, it was very important for us to do it and so we did it. And of course you could get tickets for $3 up in the balcony. So that was was helpful as well. Um, the the spirit of the school was, um, you know, fame is part is fifty percent correct. Every lunch hour, there was an impromptu musical. That's true. That part of fame is true. In the lunchroom, people danced and sang and got up on tables and did. I mean, we had you heard who I was going to school with. We had the best dancers to be in the city, um, and that spirit was there. We constantly did constantly did shows every assembly we had an assembly once a week at every single assembly there was a performance of some sort there was a dance performance or a music performance or a drama performance every single week and we also got together and did shows um wrote shows directed shows acted in them um so it was a very conservative the experience was much like a small conservatory um, there was no discipline problem. That part of fame is not correct. There was not one single discipline problem. It was so hard to get into performing arts that once you were in here, the worst thing that you could ever think about is being expelled. Um, and so there were never any discipline. Very, very high academics because in order to get in, you had to have no academic problems at all. You had to have a very strong strong average. So because your day was divided in half, I don't know if they still do that, but... Your day was absolutely divided in half. You had what we used to call shop, which were depending on what department you were in—dance, theater, or music. So you had four classes in the afternoon of that, and four classes in the morning of academics. And you also, because it was small, I had the same math teacher for four years. So this math teacher, when I finally did well in one of the disciplines, which was <laughs> geometry, I was—I mean, was. I was horrible and everything else but geometry because it didn't have numbers because it was letters and it was form and you know all that visual sense i've suddenly excelled in something she couldn't figure it out and she went how is this possible you've never been able to add in your life you know whatever but it was wonderful because there was someone who knew you so well and it was a very secure uh feeling here um very secure
2: it's interesting that as the theater's gotten smaller, the theater schools have gotten larger. I know. What does I that know. mean, I wonder? <laughs> question. Yeah.
4: Uh, Mr. Bernard, you asked a very interesting question earlier um, uh, about what can we do to make theater you know, bring it back or at least keep it alive more vigorously. And uh, uh, several months ago, uh, a couple of friends in... So decided maybe we could make a contribution to that. And we started working on an idea for a television series on the history of the American theater, a PBS type of thing. Well, you know, we were just cooking up the ideas and developed it, and it sort of had a life of its own. Uh, and we've found a, a very interested major sponsor who is interested in We've, uh, uh, just by showing it to a few people about uh, collected about a handful of letters from prominent theater people who were enthusiastic about it, but it's a very small handful. And what this uh, corporate sponsor said is that what they needed were many, many more letters from prominent people in the theater. And I, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I wondered if uh, I could find out where to send uh, the, a copy of the proposals to each of you later after this meeting. And if uh, you don't like it, tear it up and throw it away but if you think it has value to theater, uh, a letter, a sentence or two might be very helpful to get this going to the idea of course, because it is to help the Sure come Theater, because so absolutely. One of the, the letters came from a professor of uh, theater who, uh, at a college who said, "I get very embarrassed I start talking to my students about Soraya and O'Neill and they don't even know who they are. Yes, I know. Okay. I was a
2: teacher. Um, you, we're reachable through the foundation. Okay. and um, I'm, I'm in the telephone book, but I can't say... For
3: <laughs> yeah, through, through the union.
2: Okay. Through so the I, union or the foundation, 1501 Broadway. Yes, I yeah. Have okay. yeah. Well, but I, I think that ties in with what Susan was saying before and what I've always said is that if you're going to make something, you know, if something's going to happen, you're going to have to make it happen. There are no holes waiting to be filled. We have to first dig them <laughs> and then try to be the person to fill them.
3: On right. this gentleman behind you, David. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I,
2: I came we noticed. it. And
1: I was thinking about what you were saying. I, I remember this building and they were saying to me when I was a little boy about going to school there. And I was sort of shocked Well, they didn't get rid of this building. I was thinking about that. What I'm trying to say is in 19. 40-something war side and uh, I joined the guards. I was 13, so I joined the guards and I was busy uh, training in New Jersey and doing all sorts of things, a lot of espionage and all that sort of thing. It was a wonderful thing for me to do. Like, I got a lot of people in it. And uh, the reason I'm grateful for that motion memorial for, for Tiger Haynes, who ah. was doing it at that time. And I'm just a little boy. I didn't even see the grave and smoke and anything like that, so I just hang out at the bar. But I was thinking about the thing that I, I felt missing out of New York. You know, after traveling out west a lot, being you know, upstate, place, The little things that are very big here, or that used to be very big here, you know, the little school that you went to, was such a warm community, and now I get the feeling that people are watching TV, so I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And so what happens is we never really quite get to know each other. We never quite get to it to relax with one another, mm-hmm. Never quite. So when I see the program sometime, I thought there was something wrong with me, that I was being very critical within myself. And I realized it wasn't that at all. The little things that Grandpa told me about on the road, what I was missing, the feeling was gone. Because the thing got so so bad, so large. And he'd always say, the bigger it is, the smaller you make it. Well, well I'm I'm told, Yeah. Told yeah. <laughs> it. You know, and it always worked for me.
3: I was so distressed. There was a major fire and it gutted this building. And I actually, when I heard it on the news, I actually burst into tears. I was so distressed to think that the building was going to go down because I had such an emotional investment in it, it meant so much to me and who I have become. Um, so I'm thrilled that at least the outside of the building is still here. But interesting to end this relates to the gentleman up there's question about the... who He now goes to the High School of Performing Arts, which is up at LaGuardia, which is now merged with the High School of Music and Art. And they wanted to do that when I was here at Performing Arts. We fought it tooth and nail because we wanted to hang on to the smallness of this. To the, There was something about being able to have a sense of community. I think that's very, very true. It's very hard in New York City to have a sense of community. And when I went, because I did speak at uh, the new high school of performing arts, music and art, and I walked in and it was vast. There were these huge halls and there were just hundreds and hundreds of students. Um, and I was daunted by it. it. It looked to me like all the high schools that I didn't want to go to. And, um, and I felt saddened by it. That doesn't mean that they're not doing wonderful things and there aren't great teachers there. But, but I think there's something that happens when you feel secure. There's something when you when you feel trust and you feel um, nurturing that allows you to create at a faster rate, I think, um, because you're willing to risk. You know that somebody's going to be there, um, you know, to grab you if you fall. So, yeah. David, uh, um,
1: I was wondering if you could
2: talk a little bit about your process. Where- um, I think she just did.
3: <laughs> That's, someone just wrote a, There's a book that TCG just put out, uh, sort of like actors on acting, where they each talk about uh, working with directors. And I received a copy of it and didn't realize that one of the actors in it was writing about me. And I was very taken aback and, because I don't think about my method at all. And there she was discussing my method working with actors. It was so surreal to read it. <laughs> I said, really? Is that what I do? Um, do you think that what you do with
2: actors um, is, is the same on each show?
3: No, and it's not the same I mean, with each actor. Right. It's not the same with each actor. I think uh-huh. if, if I have a technique at all, it's to, it's to try to find out what works for that actor and not treat all actors like the same person. I mean, everybody comes from a different background. Every actor works differently. Some actors want you to give them everything. It has nothing to do with talent. Some vastly talented actors that I've worked with, I never would have dreamed, would want me to give them every inch of blocking, want every inch of blocking to pick up the soda now. And others don't want to even... I mean, they may want a little nudge in that direction, but that's about it. And you just don't know t- till you start working with them. And that's what I try to do. I try to sort of find out what they need from me. Um, and I, I, I all th- the one thing I do do is do an enormous amount of homework so that when the time comes and the actor goes, I'm falling, <laughs> I need help here, that I can supply the answers. Um, I also try to keep it a a collaborative and congenial environment. I'm not one who works well under stress. I don't believe... There are other directors that believe that, They actually believe creating a crisis situation uh, helps creativity. I personally... It doesn't help my creativity, so hence I don't create that situation. Um.
2: Yeah, I've heard of those people,
3: but I don't know. I don't understand it. Yeah. Um, You were talking about the church basement. Can you call to mind any specific one? Well, I work at a church. Yes, I've I've been working. Well, first, the Church of the Heavenly Rest is one where York Theater. Janet Walker started the York Theater. That's tied up. That is tied up. Doing very well. I worked at a church on um, 67th Street and First Avenue, a Lutheran church. I cannot remember the name. They had the rec hall. You know what it is? that They don't use the rec hall every single night. So that's what we, or recall they call them community rooms. They have different names for them. Some may charge a little bit, and some, you know, you might you talk your way into it. You say, look, I'll do this show, and all your church members can come for free. And you can put it on your calendar, and you'll have another event. And you're, the, or, I'll, you know, people who come who work in the church, maybe they want to work on the show. I mean, there's ways into it. I think you have to offer them something as well, um, I think we should also
2: be thinking in terms of uh, other kinds of spaces that, yeah. that are not being used all the time. Uh, you know, off-Broadway, when, when that first began to sparkle a little bit, all of us were running around all over New York looking for hotels with ballrooms.
3: Right, right.
2: <laughs> or big meeting rooms.
3: Right, exactly. Um, my friend who started the dinner theater out on Long Island literally went to a hotel out there and said, how often is this ballroom booked? And he said, what are you talking about? She said, how often does it borrow book? He said, well, we have three ballrooms, and this particular ballroom gets, I don't know, five bookings a month. She said, five bookings a month? <laughs> That's too laugh. We can put something in here where we'll have people in here every night. And he said, what are you talking about? You know, so you have to be able to an entrepreneur. Any big room, any big room, yeah, I think we all need
2: to be thinking creatively about space. Um, you know. The, the only problems you actually run into all the time are um, the fire department access and <laughs> right. all of that. But, right. but I think you have to start thinking about unconventional locales. Yeah. But certainly, the you know, the only way we're going to make progress is for people to start... In every corner, doing something, doing something. Look at all the site-specific stuff that's happening now, too.
1: That's Maybe like outdoor, outdoor. Uh-huh.
2: yeah. Well, the the one that's reviewed in the Times today of the mm-hmm. Ann Bogart's production mm-hmm. of the marathon dancing in the ballroom and in, oh, yes. in mm-hmm. Chelsea. But you know, keep mm-hmm. your eyes open for space, mm-hmm. and then then you start to think, what can I put in it?
3: Right. Exactly. You had a question. you see a lot, of play, a lot of musicals that go from one side to the other. Well, the, the sung-through musical really is a, was a British invention going back to um, opera and operetta. So it, it was sort of, you know, it sort of did that kind of flip backwards. But that really did come to us through um, through uh, mainly um, Andrew Lloyd Webber and oh, I guess the other two guys are French, actually, Um but anyway, European, let's call it the European influence in, um, in sung through musicals. Um, there's, you know, I, I'll be generalizing because every, for every example I can give of that, I can find the flip. So who knows? You know, I don't know. Um, the The British musical did bring over what I call the, the spectacle to musicals. Um, I don't know if we would have gotten there without them, but they did do it. So, Um, I don't know. know. I I don't want to just give you I I, smile.
1: I do think that sometimes in New York, the thing that made New York fascinating to me whenever I went away from New York as a young man to go home or someplace else, I wanted to get back to the small town, little old New York, the little place that was so big. I was wondering whether, if it wasn't the question of, of the country leaving the city altogether, so that when we go to the country, instead of trying to discover the country, we try to change it to the city, so much so that the, the city is just full of people who are trying to make the big thing so much, trying to make the big happening. happen. And uh, I understand that, that, that closeness that used to be New York.
3: It could be. It could be. I mean, I don't know. I just, there's a wonderful program on Channel 13 about neighborhoods in New York City. It's a wonderful program. And I remember that, and I don't see that anymore. You know, I do remember those neighborhoods, which were small communities in which you felt extremely safe. Um, again, um, not just physically safe, but emotionally safe as well. So.
2: It's interesting, because with mm-hmm. Hal, too, we were talking mm-hmm. about the theater community and, and how it's...
3: It, it's, it's... it has dissipated. I mean, I yeah. try to reach out. To um, one of the things we turned to do at SDC, the SDC Foundation, SSDC was talking about um, reaching out to fellow directors of having a sense of community. I don't know if I wasn't uh, on the board of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, how many other directors I'd come in contact with. Right. You know, I'm thrilled to death to sit on a board with you know six other, seven other women directors, um, and 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 all the wonderful. Um, male directors on the board and, and just to be able to at least once at least once a month get together and discuss what's going on <laughs> crab and uh, whatever and have people who understand exactly what you're going through it's just a dire need for that sense of community absolutely
2: yeah um, it's uh, it's the nature of the beast being a dir- directors work with choreographers but directors don't work with other directors so it, it, when I first went on the board it was just a revelation right. Thank you all for coming.
3: Thank you. Thank, you. thank you.
0: Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.